TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This message comes from Apple Card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hi, this is Debbie Millman. I'll be back in a few weeks with a new season of podcasts. In the meantime, I want to look back on some of the best moments on the podcast in 2016. All of the episodes are up on iTunes, so if you hear something you like and want to listen to the whole episode, it'll be there, ready and waiting. In May, I spoke with Alison Bechdel, Her long-running alternative comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, is one of the major achievements in the genre. Her graphic memoirs, Fun Home, and Are You My Mother, brought her work to a mainstream audience. In 2015, Fun Home was adapted as a Tony Award-winning Broadway musical. Early in the interview, Alison Bechdel mentioned an episode of OCD from her childhood. A little later, I brought it up again. Going back for a moment to the OCD episode, what ultimately gave you the sense that you didn't need to do that kind of behavior anymore? Did your mother's dictation really stop it? You know, honestly, I haven't stopped it. I still do it. I still am (laughs) riddled with it. I just have learned to disguise it. In what way? Like something productive? Well, in some ways, I would say that becoming a cartoonist was a productive way of harnessing it. But no, I make little ticks and gestures all the time that I hope other people can't see. Like what? Oh, God. But um, now you're telling me that I'll be noticing them, but I, I promise I, I like won't. Like right now, I'm sort of breathing out of this side of my mouth instead of naturally. Is it because you're uncomfortable? I do it all the time, but I guess maybe I'm always uncomfortable a little bit. Why? I don't know. Uh, I wish I could get rid of it. I wish I could get this whole feeling like needed out of my body, but then I don't know if I would still be myself. I would be someone else. I know you don't like the question, when did you decide you wanted to be a cartoonist? But I I couldn't help but wonder how on earth your guidance counselor in high school could recommend that you become a dentist. (laughs) How on earth (laughs) did she think? I think it was the result of some achievement test. There are these like vocational sorting tests that they give you. I don't know. I guess I scored high for dentist. You've stated that drawing people has always been your passion. And as a child, you rarely bothered creating backgrounds for your figures because you were too eager to move on to your next subject. And 
You drew hundreds of soldiers and cowboys and Indians and baseball players and executioners and boxers. This is your list. Chefs, explorers, policemen, firemen, musicians, scientists, lumberjacks, farmers, spies, mountain climbers, lifeguards, astronauts, accountants, disc jockey, coal miners, businessmen, and bartenders, among numerous other central casting types. But they were all male. Why? Well, as a kid, I didn't really even notice it. I was just, I mean, I grew up in the 60s when it was a man's world. So that the guys were doing the stuff that interested me. I didn't, representations of women were just absurd. They were like housewives or secretaries, which didn't interest me. And then as I got older and had more of a political awareness or became more of a feminist, it occurred to me that to be a woman meant to be something other. It meant that you were not human. You were something other than human. And I would think of like the Mickey Mouse versus Minnie Mouse. You know, Mickey was just like the regular generic human mouse, and Minnie was Mickey with all these appurtenances and details added to her. Did you say Minnie was Mickey in drag? Yeah. That's better put. Yes, thank you. You said that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it wasn't like I was drawing men. I was just drawing people, the people who were doing the things that interested me. But then later, I feel like there, there was some element of gender dysphoria at work, that there was some way that I've always... I mean, I don't identify as transgender at all, but there was a way that I just felt more male, like more masculine. Like I just am a masculine woman, I guess. And I'm I, as a young feminist, that felt like very bad. You should eradicate that in yourself if you could. But I've come more to just accept it. That was Alison Bechdel. For many years, one of my favorite writers has been Alain de Botton. His books include The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work, How to Think More About Sex, how Proust Can Change Your Life. He also writes fiction, and his latest novel is The Course of Love. His fiction and nonfiction both display incredible emotional intelligence. When I spoke with him in June, I asked him if he'd been able to make sense of his own difficult childhood. I have been able to make sense of it and to put it in context. I think that all of us experience some form of early trauma or another, and you know, lives get defined by what you do with that trauma. What are you going to do with it? Um, can you put it to use? Can you recognize it? Can you integrate it into your life um, fruitfully? And looking back, I think, given the cards I was dealt, you know, I've done that more or less on a good day. And that's a source of satisfaction to me. Interesting that you say on a good day. I understand that feeling where you're always sort of aware of the trauma. And some days it just seeps through, bubbles back up. And destroys everything. <laughs> my, my, my view of human nature is that all of us are only just holding it together in various ways. And that's okay. And we just need to go easy with one another, knowing that we're all these incredibly fragile beings. And um, human nature is, is perverse, bizarre, um, always perplexing. You say that few of us are remotely normal sexually. And I'm not even sure what normal means anymore. And that's right. Our desires, and we can thank Freud for this, of course, emerge from childhood and are reflections of all sorts of uh, commitments and ideas. Um, I I think to some extent Freud was guilty of making sexuality seem too weird. Um, (laughs) I have a friend who's very interested in in men who wear unshowy but elegant old timepieces on their wrists, and she finds this sexually exciting. 
Now, well, you know, where do we go with that thought? Like many fetishes, it's often linked to a desire for something quite logical, really, in that person's life. What that person wants is a certain sort of manliness that she associated with her father and a sort of watch that he used to wear. It's not the father she wants, it's the qualities she associates with her father that are embodied in that watch. And the watch becomes a sexual object and she wants to integrate the watch into a sexual game. And it's because very perverse. It's not at all. It's what we try and do often in sexual games is um, articulate bits of our own utopia, bits of our own utopic desires, how we want the world to be. We want the world to be a place where there are more gentle, older men who have a thoughtful, um, conversational relationship with women. You know, and that's going to latch onto the watch. So that becomes the symbol. And then you want to have sex with someone wearing the watch or even with the watch itself. It sounds a little odd, but it's in fact quite logical. And you, you can analyze so many so-called fetishisms like this. I mean, take the phenomenon of spitting, the desire that some people have to spit on a partner. You go, well, what on earth is that? Now, think about how little children are taught from a very young age that spitting is the worst thing to do, um, that that's really a horrible thing to do. Imagine being in a safe zone with a partner and that you are able to show your contempt for your contemptuous sides and nevertheless not censored for them. You know, we, we grow up having to be good boys and girls, and that's quite punishing. And one of the things I think we want from sex is a release from that pressure to be a good boy or girl. We want to be seen as good, but not having to be good in any kind of overly punitive way. So being bad yet accepted is a really strong sexual fantasy. But again, it's not just a sexual fantasy. It's a human fantasy. It's how we want someone else to treat us. Do you feel that every relationship or most relationships have an aspect of trying to repair a previous childhood trauma embedded in them? Yes, definitely. And this is why many relationships are incredibly conflictual. They have a lot of conflict in them because you know, somebody who's got trouble reconciling the physical and the mental or, you know, affection and work or whatever it may be, may, may choose a partner who represents some of these, who's interestingly situated around some of these tensions. And then the challenge is, can they together heal that area? Can, can they use their partner, the partner, as a tool with which to go and fix something? And unfortunately, most of the time, what happens is people just blame the other for a dynamic that's in them and that's in their past and they punish them and two people don't grow and, you know, mostly that happens. Alain de Botton. Lisa Congdon was a late bloomer. She didn't become a professional artist until she was in her late 30s. She's also the author of six books, including Art, Inc., The Essential Guide to Building Your Career as an Artist. In May, I had the chance to ask her about art and money and the emotional complications of earning a living as an artist. In the beginning of Art, Inc., I write about the starving artist myth. And part of the starving artist myth is not only that you're destined to a life of eating ramen 
But the idea that 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 actually somehow makes being an artist more noble, that somehow this idea that if you're sort of making money from your work, it's not as pure an experience, um, that maybe you're driven by different motivations if you're doing commercial work or if your work becomes popular, then you're sort of influenced in a different way. While that may be true, I was like, well, I don't really care because I want to make a living doing this. And I'm still always going to be true to my, you know, core values. And I still feel like, you know, it's possible for me to make a living doing this thing. And it's possible for other people to make a living doing it. And that doesn't make it wrong. Without an illustration agent, you're the person then that also has to negotiate with your clients. Is that uncomfortable for you? Yeah, I have um, I have a studio manager who does a lot of that for me. And then my wife, Clay, also manages my contracts. But in fact, this morning, I had to s- talk about money with the potential client. It is often uncomfortable, but I've gotten really good at it. And I really have a strong sense of um, how much money I deserve to be paid for certain things. That's much harder to wrap your head around and put your finger on when you're first starting out. I think that's something that comes with experience. And it was very convenient for me that I had an agent in the first seven years of my career because she taught me a lot about what I was worth and what my work was worth. And um, when I decided to leave her and go out on my own, that was a big step for me. But I realized I was ready. Another thing that I I was really intrigued by in Art, Inc. was you declare this. One thing I know for sure is that to be a successful artist, you must start with the simplest proclamation. I am an artist. It's a basic assertion, but seeing yourself as an artist, legitimate and genuine, can be transformational. How did you get to that place in your life? Was it scary for you? Did you feel... Do you feel 100% comfortable with the moniker artist now? I'm 100% comfortable now, but for years I felt like an imposter. I mean, I was experiencing success, and that was actually when the imposter syndrome really hit home because I thought, oh, I'm getting paid to do this? At some point, somebody's going to realize that I don't really know what I'm doing, or I sort of like taught myself how to do this. Like, I'm not really a real artist. I'm sort of faking it. I don't feel that way at all anymore. But for many years, that was how I felt because I just had to pinch myself every day. Like, I can't believe I get to do this and that people are taking me and my work seriously. Oh, I can't begin to tell you how many people have sat in the chair you're sitting in now and have tried to explain their success as luck. Yeah. And I just don't buy it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because that's part of why I wrote that in the beginning of Art, Inc., because it feels so important to me, especially for the future of the arts and the future of being an artist or a designer, that, you know, we have to really own it as um, something that's worthwhile and something that we need to be paid well to do. This is not a joke profession. You know, we work hard and um, we have real talent and... um, it's funny, like people will come to my book signings and they'll put the book on Art Inc. on the table and I'll sign it. And I'll say, so I'll say, are, are you an artist or what kind of artist are you? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, I don't know. I'm not really an artist. But they're buying my book because right. they want to be, wanna, be they an wanna, artist. Right. And it's almost this level of shame, you know, like until you've made it or something, you can't really proclaim yourself as an artist. And I think it's particularly bad in women. So that's something I'm always trying to fight. You have such an unusual story coming into your second career with such success. 
And in a recent interview on the Fast Company website, you state, I think almost everything I do now I was not capable of at 25. And it's not just because I have more knowledge or savvy now about how to run a successful business or that I know more about the power of discipline. Those things are important, sure. But the most essential and beautiful thing about getting older is that you also acquire this thing called perspective. So I want to ask you how perspective has helped you and what has it helped you with? I just take things way less seriously. So I find that I'm just way less stressed out about taking risks or putting my work out there. It's like we're all scared and we all have anxiety. It doesn't ever go away, but there's a way that I sort of am able to live with my fear and do stuff anyway that I because I have perspective that the world's not going to come crashing to an end. I'm not going to die. You know, it's all going to how to rely on yourself a little bit more. Yeah, I I realize like, you know, stuff happens and sometimes the stuff is hard, but you always, you know, you get through it. I've been through some hard stuff in my life and I've gotten through all of it and I know that I can, can get through it again. And yeah, that's part of the part of getting older that I think is the most amazing. Lisa Congdon. Since 2002, Chris Anderson has been the man behind the TED Conference. He owns the nonprofit organization which, among other things, puts out videos that are viewed about a billion times a year. Chris Anderson's parents were very religious, and he grew up as a practicing Christian. When he joined me on the podcast in June, I asked him what his religious beliefs were now. Um, I don't think I believe in a God who is both all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. I just don't think you can reconcile those three things with the world that we see. Um, people try, but it's, it's, really, it's really hard to do. I think you have to have a view of the world that allows for random evil to take place. Otherwise, you have to, if you believe in a God, you almost have to believe that, that aspects of that God are kind of monstrous in some ways. Uh, and so this, the, the, the view of life that I grew up with, that every single thing that happened happened for a reason, I actually don't think that's a particularly healthy belief. I, I think if they did happen for a reason, then that reason was often dastardly. You just, there are just too many awful things happen in the world for it to be someone's reason what, who planned that. Right. At the same time, I think there's extraordinary mystery in the world. It's not clear at all that the sort of, if you like, the one reductionist view sort of of the scientific story is all that is to be said, you know, that, that there just are these atoms and forces and we are chemical scum on the surface of a random planet somewhere and that's it. That story has not yet given a good account of consciousness and of, of the actual human experience, the experience of what it is to be alive, what it is to feel, to love, to do all these things. There are physical explanations of biological robots that could do those things, but they seem to miss out the main part of the story. So anyway, I, I think there's, there's so much mystery in the world, and I think it's possible to be on a journey where you believe in spirituality, you believe in a quest for connectedness, you believe in a search for a deeper story without accepting simple answers that we grew up with or whatever. And so I'm, I'm, I kind of feel that I'm on that journey. As a teenager, you went to a Christian boarding school in England and then went on to Oxford University where you initially studied physics. Did you want to be uh, a scientist? Yeah, I wanted to be a physics professor. I wanted to smoke a pipe and have a jacket with leather elbows and um, 
and pontificate to adoring students on how amazing <laughs> the universe really was and uh, inspire people that way. Do you have then, a pipe and a jacket with leather patches? Well, you know, I, I, I did when I was 18, just to, pra- <laughs> just to practice. Uh, and then I realized that to do physics at Oxford, you have to kind of plug in cathode ray oscilloscopes and do experiments and things that were terribly difficult and boring. And so I abandoned it. What made you decide <laughs> to get a degree in philosophy, politics, and economics? What were you expecting to do with that type of degree instead? It was just thinking, dreaming, um, trying to understand uh, the big questions about the world. I, you know, who are we? What on earth is free will? Does it make any sense? Where does morality come from? All, all those things. Like, and, and I'm not sure I got that many answers from studying philosophy, but it was fun trying. When did you decide you wanted to be a journalist? I stumbled on a book by Harry Evans, Sir Harold Evans, um, who was at the time editor of the Times and the Sunday Times and then became head of Random House here. He wrote an incredible series of books about newsman's English and then about the design of newspapers. And um, I think even newspapers as, as craft, I'd never thought of it as craftsmanship. And so I'd always been interested on the one hand in the sort of scientific and that part of the world, but also in English and in language and in communication. And it felt like the craftsmanship of journalism, as, as described in those books, was incredibly exciting to me. And so I got, I got hooked and I thought, boy, you know, as a teacher, I might talk to 30 kids at university or something once a year. But in mass media, if you get it right, you can have a bigger imprint than that. And so there's possibly an arrogance there or something like that. But, um, but I just got excited about the, the scale that was possible going in, into that career. Chris Anderson. In 2016, I had a few guests on the podcast who are hosts of their own podcasts or radio shows, including Krista Tippett, the host of Public Radio's On Being. Before it was On Being, the program was called Speaking of Faith. I asked her about the change of title and what it meant. Um, what was really on my mind and what was on our mind was that the title Speaking of Faith, which had been the original title of the show, the show had evolved and kind of grown up and found its voice. And that was no longer a good description of what happened uh, in the show. It was not so much about speaking of something. We're still working with faith and with people in the depths of traditions, but also with people who are in all kinds of human endeavors, making all kinds of insights and discoveries who might not themselves be religious, but whose insights are spiritually evocative. And also, it was one of the most wonderful things to me about the show that I didn't expect is that from the very beginning, the space was full of people who were atheists and agnostic, who wanted to be part of the discussion of all these important things we talk about when we talk about faith, and who have ethical lives um, and, and moral lives and, uh, and spiritual lives, um, but not in traditional ways. But, you know, to your question, I think that it probably also did reflect how my own passions had become more expansive and spacious. I love the notion of going from of to on. Yeah. It somehow feels really profound. Yeah. But I want to talk about your second book, Einstein's God, which detailed many of the significant ways your show and your vision continued to evolve. And in the book, you state that the science-religion debate is unwinnable, and it has led us astray. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think it has led us astray from. 
I think the science-religion debate and the debate that's out there, and we all know what I'm talking about, yes. um, it's false. It's misleading. It's actually not based on any kind of real understanding of what science does or what religion does. And one of the simplest ways to talk about that is that we act like science and religion are reaching different conclusions on the same questions. Science has one answer and religion has another and they duke it out. The truth is that they're they're asking different questions, you know? Even when science and religion are looking at the same phenomenon, which they're often not doing, they're asking different questions of it. I mean, the question of God, in fact, is not something that most true scientists would even pronounce on because it's not something on which which we can definitively prove or disprove. So the whole evolution thing is just based on a very simplistic understanding of religion. We also bring a simplistic understanding of the history of science to our understanding of that debate because until very recently, you know, the last couple hundred years, I mean, the great scientists, Copernicus and Galileo, Newton, they had a very theological perspective and they brought that together and they believed that any way that they could illuminate the workings of the natural world and the cosmos would would help us better understand the mind of its maker. There was no conflict um, between those things. And these are such two beautiful, vast disciplines in human life. And we need both of them to explore the fullness of who we are. Krista Tippett. The poet Eileen Miles joined me on the podcast in November. She's been well-known in the poetry world for many years, but she recently vaulted to a new level of renown when two of her books were republished and when the Amazon show Transparent modeled a character on her. When she was young, she was brutally assaulted, and she writes about it in her book, Chelsea Girls. I asked her about how she survived emotionally. Um, I just, I think I'm lucky. I think I'm lucky. And I think, I mean, I think that somehow creativity isn't my favorite word in the world. It always seems like my creativity always seems so corny. But I do think, in my, if I think about being young, being, you know, the really hard ages for me were like 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Really till I came to New York and then the first year or so of New York was a little rough. But it was just that gap where will I survive, you know? And it was about that. It was about sexuality. I mean, it was about becoming a writer. And and it was also struggling with alcoholism and drug addiction and all that, you know, and food issues, you know, like the whole the whole cocktail of, of being female at that moment in time and throwing in that experience that happened to me. And so I think that I was sort of on the verge of a nervous breakdown a lot. And I didn't know what to do except to keep moving. And so I remember moving to San Francisco when I was um, 22 and, you know, living alone or living or living um, in Cambridge with girlfriends, you know, friends um, after college and just always having, you know, like always drinking too much and then trying not to. And so kind of detoxing but not knowing that that's what I was doing. So just kind of going nuts and and being on the verge of hallucinations and, you know, hearing the whole, I mean, the whole thing. And the only thing I could come out of that with every time was that if you're not creative, your creativity is going to use you. 
Do you know what I mean? I just yes. was well aware of the fact that the only way to stop hallucinations was to write hallucinations. I feel like that's where the poetry came in. And it just, you know, it took a collective situation, which is what I found at St. Mark's in the poetry community to kind of ground me, you know, because what I never had was a group. I never had a group of artists. I never had a group of crazy people, you know. I mean, I've had gangs when I was a teenager, but somehow finding one that was really about going ahead with this thing, you know. And then later on when it was, you know, a group of gay people and finding yourself collectively has always been the most powerful thing for me. In 1982, you gave up drinking, uh-huh. and you've said that if you hadn't given up drinking, you'd be dead, and have said 33 has been a magic number for me for so many years, because in a way, it was the year that I died. When I first got sober and I walked through New York, I felt like a ghost. How did you begin to feel alive again? Well, it's sort of like the waters recede when you drink and drug a lot, and coming back from that, your body, your psyche, your everything is utterly confused, your sexuality. I mean, like every bit of it had to kind of come awake. You know, that's a physical process. That's a spiritual process. That's an emotional process. So, you know, I had lots of support. I increasingly had friends who were doing the same thing as me. And so we talked about it. I mean, that was a big piece. It was figuring out how to talk, not just about recovering, but to talk, period. Because what I didn't know, I mean, like, obviously, there's some of the stuff that I went through when I was younger meant that drugs and alcohol were my salvation. They kind of made it so I could feel the things I felt and then go forward and be bold in some way, you know? So it's just like, they both were salvation. To get drunk was salvation. To get sober was salvation. Did your writing change after you stopped drinking? It got wider, I think. I mean, like, I think in life, the road gets narrower on a certain level. You know, we become something, we become somebody, and you specialize and specialize and specialize. But I think that when when we're talking about doing anything in the grips of an addiction, it's sort of like the room just starts to get really small, you know? And so I could write poems, and the poems were getting worse. I mean, they were getting stupid and bad and dull, and, you know, like, I just had less access to my interiority. So when I got sober, it was just sort of silly and loose at first. And I, you know, it took about seven months for me to start to get a feeling that I knew my instrument again. And then it was different, of course. I remember when I was drinking and drugging, I just felt like my mind was kind of dirty. And there were all these interesting shelves where I could leave stuff and put this note here and, you know, everything. It was just like a messy room that I was familiar with. And when I got sober, it was just like I had been washed Mm. And I was just like, whoa, where am I? And then I had to find new habits. And, and I, it's sad to be much more about my process rather than there being some imaginary place, you know. Eileen Miles. On Decide Matters, I interview designers, artists, writers, and every now and then I interview musicians like Amanda Palmer. My interview with her was the longest I've ever conducted on the podcast. She's just that interesting. At the end, I asked her to sing a song, and she did, with the ukulele in our little recording booth. To close out the podcast this week, here's Amanda Palmer singing Bigger on the Inside. And there's no point in 
responding Cause it will not make them stop And I am tired of explaining And of seeing so much hating In the very same safe haven Where I used to just see helping I've been drunk and skipping dinner Eating skin from off my fingers And I tried to call my brother But he no longer exists I keep forgetting to remember that
cared he asked me how do you keep fighting and the truth is I don't know I think it's funny that he asked me cause I don't feel like a fighter lately I am too unhappy you are bigger on the inside but your father cannot see you need to tell someone be strong and somewhere some dumb rock star truly loves you From my view here by the bedside It is difficult to see the ones I love So close to death All their infections and prescriptions And the will to live at all in question Can I not accept that my own problems are so small You took my hand when you woke up I had been crying in the darkness We all die alone But I am so, so glad that you are here You whispered we are so much Amanda Palmer. You can download full episodes in the iTunes Store. I'll be back in a few short weeks with a new season of Design Matters featuring guests including filmmaker and television director Brian Koppelman, art director and illustrator Nicholas Blechman, 
tech entrepreneur Anil Dash, author Seth Godin, and many, many others. Design Matters is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudley. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. This is now the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.